Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy from Guy's Woodshop, and as always, I'm joined by Hui Huen, also known as the Alabama Woodworker. Good evening, Guy. Good evening, Hui. And Brian Schmidt. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing well. Good, good. How are you? I'm I'm doing great. Oh, I'm happy good. to be here. Oh, good. <laughs> This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And we also have a Patreon account. Right now we have one level and we're simply asking for a small donation just to try cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife and stay tuned to the end of the show to hear about what those guys have going on in their shops. <laughs> So let's get right into it. Hui, you've got the first question. Okay, so this question is from A. Torres. I don't, Torres, I don't know what your first name is, but uh, we'll call you Torres. Hello, fellas. Thanks for the enjoyable podcast. Well, you're very welcome. I've been listening for months, but finally asking a question. Where do you guys look for inspiration when it comes to design for furniture pieces? Any particular magazines or books you like to reference when coming up with designs, not necessarily looking for how-tos, but more on design and style. Thanks again. So, Torres, I've actually been looking at some something that's uh, relatively new, a little bit controversial, um, but I've been going on to chat, chat GPT and typing in different things to try to see what the AI algorithm comes up with. Uh, and I did that for a handful of times. And it I, obviously, there are other sources, but I'm just bringing up something that I think is kind of interesting we can have a discussion on. But I've been referencing that. Now, sometimes you get some really funky, wonky looking pictures. But other times you kind of have some interesting elements that are incorporated into, say, I don't know, a chest of drawers that is in an art deco style or whatnot. And it comes up with something pretty interesting. What do you think, Guy? Are, are, are they like pictures of real stuff or are they like rendering their own furniture through the AI? So I believe it's rendering its own design through the AI. Okay. And so it's, it's taking elements of what you're telling it and it's just kind of combining them to okay. um, make So it's it just not like looking stuff up. It's right. actually designing it. Right, right. And okay. and more so, I'm not looking for, like Torres is saying here, not looking for a how-to, but just like an idea, an inspiration or something, you know, like, oh, I didn't think of that element there, or maybe that sort of thing. I didn't think about that. But how about you, Guy? I mean, you, you've you done, uh, I know, plenty of searching. I mean, I remember when you were building that green and green clock. Uh, like, what did you do in order to get some of the motifs or design elements for that clock? Well, that was kind of a um, a flyer for me. Yeah. Actually, I talked to a lot of people about that. Yeah. Um, more than anything else. I looked at what had been built already. I talked to some people that do a lot of green and green furniture and knew it much better than I did. And uh, because the item I was building had never really been been built that way before so it's like a shaker style clock but in the green and green style and i couldn't find anything to just you know that was close to it so but anyways i i i mean that's what i do at work now i 
design a lot of furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it is pre-designed by the customer, but some I've been working on a super secret project mm. at work, which is involving designing a lot of, yeah, the, the, the boss is in the room. <laughs> I'm not saying what it's for, Brian, but I've been designing a lot of furniture and like full rooms of furniture and they're all in certain styles. So they're like, you could do your whole house in this stuff. And I've been doing a lot of that. Um, and I've been getting most of the inspiration for that just from searching the web. Mostly. There's a couple websites I visit that have, they're, they're like an aggregate of lots of different companies selling stuff. And, uh, I get a lot of inspiration from that. And I take some, a piece, you know, I see this, I say, that's kind of nice. And I'll, I'll take, uh, I've got a whiteboard and I take the picture. I just drag it onto the whiteboard and then I'll see something else. And I just get this whiteboard with 20, 30 pictures on it. And then I say, well, I like this and I like that and I like this and I like that. And I just combine them and you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. They're, 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 they're the same style, but there's certain elements that I take from each one. I kind of make it my own. Some things I just outright steal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but a lot of it is just design elements from different pieces. Or I see a trend in something. Well, he, he, so you say steal, but in all honesty, is like something like shaker style or mission style? I mean, is that copyrighted? Yeah. Is Does that belong to anybody? No, like, it doesn't. And. You know, but still, you know, it, it, it's different when you're doing that and making it for yourself. But if you're doing something, you're going to be marketing as as something that 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 you're producing. Yeah, I think it's important to have a personal touch on it. Yeah. And yeah. it's just not a, a, a direct copy of, of yeah. what somebody else is making. Like a one for one. Brian, a question for you. Um what are some of these particular styles? I know you don't want to talk about because it's kind of, you know, top secret, it's secret hush, compartmentalized hush. information. You need a gamma clearance in order to only, get to it. Only the top security clearance. <laughs> um, oh, so then I qualify. Um, there we go. <laughs> nope. No, you don't so, qualify for this one. Oh, uh-huh, I don't have a need to know. All yeah. right, so so, but like, what are what are the different styles that you guys are utilizing for uh, that you're sort of going forward with uh, for these uh, designed rooms? Yeah, so we've got a few principles that are that are governing our thinking on it, and one of it is you know, there's a lot of furniture out there these days that that doesn't feature solid wood. And it in- introduces a lot of mixed material. And what we really specialize in is solid wood with, um, you know, custom fabricated steel, t- either as a base or in some sort of accent form. So we're saying, well, what do we do well? And how does that fit what's popular? And working on designing furniture that that blends that. Um, with Purposeful Design as a, as a mission organization with the mission of taking men off the streets of Indianapolis and providing a work opportunity for them uh, as they work, go about rebuilding their lives. We're also asking ourselves what, what, what type of furniture can we design that creates a good opportunity for our guys to practice some of the skills that we're training them on 
Um, so not a lot, you know, we're not doing turned legs or anything like that. The lathe isn't a tool that is featured in the shop. So, um, you know, it's really, really kind of specific for us, but blending, you know, capability, what's popular as well as what, what creates good opportunity for, uh, employment for, for the men that we're serving that are coming out of the homeless shelters. Man, can I tell you, that just sounds so interesting, so neat. The fact that you're not just doing what's trendy, but incorporating what are our capabilities and how can we incorporate it's, it, a really it, big need. It's mm-hmm. not It's not even really what can we incorporate. It's a matter of if we decide to move forward with this particular piece of furniture, how many hours can I give one of our guys to make it or several of our guys to make it? Yeah, it's yeah. not something that we want to make quickly. Um, we still want to be efficient. Yeah, I guess is what I'm saying. But yeah. it, it's like if we're looking at something and it's, um, for example, we had this one project uh, that I'm not going to talk about specifically what it is, <laughs> but it was a pretty big project, <clears throat> and it's going to be a, a, a the revenue is huge, but for the guys in the shop. It represents eight tabletops, and that's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So it's good that we got that job, but for the mission of what we're trying to do, that's mm-hmm. like yeah. two hours worth of work, right? For these guys, yeah. So it's yeah. that's what we look at. We look at. Can we give these guys? I mean, we were thinking about getting a CNC machine, and we nixed it because that's taking Time hours away, away taking hours away from the guys. Yeah. So, um, but the getting back to the design question, um, yes. yep. one of the things that I search quite often for is a term called transitional furniture. Yeah, that's a trendy kind of thing. It's somewhere between. Traditional furniture and mid-century modern. Yes. And there's a little bit incorporating both. And it has actually kind of like an eclectic aesthetic. Boy, that's I sound like a total dork saying stuff like that. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. You're, you're mixing traditional with more modern furniture. Yeah in the same room. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to provide a room full of furniture, not just a nightstand, a table, a coffee table. It's Mm -hmm. a grouping. Um, And it's all designed with the things that I talked before about. We we got stuff for the metal shop and stuff for the guys in the shop to make that are, that don't take tremendous amounts of, of, and years of skill to teach them how to do it. We can teach them in a, in a couple of days how to do what we need them to get done. So, but uh, that's really what I look, I do a lot of searching for transitional furniture and I look through a lot of catalogs and I may spend two or three hours just looking at photos just to get a couple ideas before I design a piece of furniture. And I've designed, oh my gosh, what is it, about 40 or 50 pieces now? Um, and that's after we called a bunch. Yeah. So yeah. called as in C A U L like, yeah. Called. Yeah. Yeah. Called. We eliminated. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess magazines, internet catalogs, those are all great 
inspirations. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, I think I'm going to shift it over to Brian. What do you got, buddy? All right. This question is from Johnny. And Johnny says, every time I make a jig, I struggle to get the fence square. How do I do this properly? Is this a common problem amongst new woodworkers? Love the show, guys. Keep it up. And I took this question because I think this is a problem that we can all relate to. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've made a jig. And I think I've got everything square and I put the square on it and sure enough, it's, it's out just enough to be problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, one of the reasons that I, I used to have a hard time getting a, a fence square or some aspect of a jig square is I would, I would go about attaching that fence with um, glue, which wasn't a great idea. Um, <laughs> cause that makes it just want to slide around when you're trying to get it, get it set. And I would go straight into trying to, you know, screw it in as, as the glue is setting. And it was just, it was a mess. So, um, what I started doing, um, I have two, two tips or tricks that I'll share that have seemed to work pretty well is depending on, on the type of fence and if it's just a piece of plywood, um, that's setting on another piece of plywood, you know, face to face. Yeah. A lot of times I'll just get my brad nailer out and I'll, I'll tack one corner of it and then I'll get it and I'll get it set square to where I can measure off that reference edge with my, with whatever square I'm using and make sure it's, it's totally square then. And then I'll, I'll tack it in the other corner with the brad nail and then maybe throw one or two more in just for overkill. And then, uh, drive one or two screws in there just to really hold it in place. And it depends too on how it's going to be used. If there's going to be much pressure up against it, or if it's really just there for, uh, to, to gently, uh, glide against with the tool. Mm -hmm. Um, and the other one is anchoring one end of it with the screw first. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is more, if you have like a, a vertical or an upright fence, like on a, um, shooting board, for example, yeah. Uh, you know, anchor one side and then oversize, uh, the hole on the other end of the fence. And, mm. um, as you, as you set that with the screw next, you know, give it that oversized hole will allow for a little bit of adjustment while you get it tightened down. And then you can come back in with, uh, additional, additional screws or fasteners to, to get it squared up. So yeah. what, do you, right what about, Guy, what do you do uh, to, to get your jigs square? Well, well, first, uh, John, I'm going to say, is this a com- he asks, is this a common problem amongst new woodworkers? This is a common problem for all woodworkers. Good point. Making jigs. Yep. It doesn't matter how much experience you have. There's, it's always an area of contention. That being said, it really depends on what the jig is for. Right. Um, Sometimes a jig being out of square a little bit is not a big deal. However, sometimes it is a big deal. Whenever you're using a a jig to cut joinery, that's where it really counts. But like, let's say you you need a jig to cut a tabletop. If it's off a little bit, who cares? Yeah. It's not butting up against anything. Right, it's just right. the top. 
So that's just an example of, you know, if it's isolated, it doesn't really matter that much. If it's off a little bit, eh, okay. Um, but if you do, like I said, you're doing joint around, especially if you're doing something like that's cutting the, the, the cheeks of a tenon. Yeah, that's important that that's square. So what I typically do in most cases is I'll take the, you know, let's say Brian's talking about the, the two piece of plywood on plywood face to face. What I'll do is I'll get a, a true known square, lay it down, reference the thing up against it. And I'll put just like two small drops of super glue. I don't put a big line of super glue. I don't use, you know, a bunch of stuff on there, just a couple drops of super glue and I'll set it next to the square. Don't clamp it. Don't move it around. Don't do anything. Just set it next to the square where you've got it referenced and leave it there for a couple minutes. Don't use accelerant. Don't use any of that crap. Just let it sit there for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. And it'll be strong enough and held in place enough where you can get a couple pins in with a pin nailer. And then you can screw it in. Because yeah. when you put glue on that thing and you slide it around to spread the glue out, it's going to keep sliding no matter what you do at that point. That's going to be slip sliding all over the place. Mm -hmm. When you put screws down into it, let's say you've got, you know, Brian's method of one screw and then another screw, one on one side and you're pivoting off that. As soon as you put that screw in there and you tighten it down, it moves the fence. Mm -hmm. Glue is going to move the fence and screws are going to move the fence. Pounding nails into it with the nail gun is going to move the fence. Anything is going to move the fence. So that's why getting something perfectly square is so difficult. That's why there are $100 squares and there's $5 squares. Yeah. You know, I I don't know any other way to to really say it that way, but, but like that. So... I've got some a couple squares that I know are square, and I use those to reference all the other stuff off of. Mm-hmm. And they've got to be, and they're pretty close. They're never perfect, but they're all pretty close. So, yeah, yeah. There you go. You know, I don't have much to add to it, uh, other than covered the stuff it all. That, I know. Yeah, you, you and Brian really kind of hit the <laughs> nail on the head. Uh, I do. I've used both methods. Uh, something that I've found that I really like to use to hold something in place and just to check if it's square. So for instance, Brian, you mentioned tacking on one corner and then going to the other, getting it aligned. Uh, what I like to do is, like you said, tack it on one corner or y- either use a nail or, or use a screw on that one end and then checking for square. And as I'm checking for square, I'm clamping it down with one of those quick grip or trigger grip uh, trigger clamps. And I'm not, you know, not clamping it down real tough or real hard. It's just enough just to hold it in place. And then I'm checking for square. And then once I get it, you know, squared up and and it looks good, then I I go ahead and go with screws. But I think you guys pretty much uh, hit the nail on the head (laughs) with those. (laughs) Boom. Boom. Yeah. So uh, so with that guy, you're you're our host. So you get the last one. Well, the last in the series. Not the, it's not the last question. So <laughs> I've got 
two questions here, and this is from Jack Francis, and I'm going to answer one of the questions on his list, not both of them, because I, I, you know how that works. Yep. So he says, our cherry wood kitchen table, which measures 36 by 48, needs refinishing. I believe the original finish is an oil-based pre-catalyzed lacquer. I'll be refinishing just the tabletop, which has several scratches and shallow dents, measuring up to one sixteenth of an inch deep. Ouch. Wow. The legs are painted black, so no need to match the color of the top with the legs. Can you recommend a method for removing the original finish? I don't own or have access to a drum sander. Also, can you recommend a durable oil-based finish for refinishing the tabletop? Is spraying the preferred method for such a large surface area, or will a wipe-on poly do the job? Thanks for all your help. Jack. So I'm going to answer his first question, and then I'll let you guys finish up with the other one because I don't want to answer everything. So let's talk about getting rid of the old finish and getting your tabletop flat and getting rid of those dents that you have in there. Um, First of all, you're just going to need to sand it off. Yeah. I'd get, you know, like a random orbit sander and 80 grit or even 60 grit and put a, you know, a, a good respirator on and get all that lacquer off of it. Yeah. And just sand it off. That's really the only way to do it. And just be careful how you do it. And you don't even have a drum sander. Being that aggressive and removing that much finish, one of the things that can happen is you can put, uh, you can make the surface very uneven. Yeah. So uh, myself, I would use a belt sander because I'm really good with the belt sander. Not a lot of people are. I, if you're not, I would not recommend them going that route. Um, but that's another, that is another method, but you just have to be careful that you don't gouge the surface. Uh, so it's not flat anymore. Getting rid of the dents. One of the ways, if these are dents, one of the things you can do, and I'm sure some of our listeners have heard about this and maybe some haven't, which is ironing dents out. Yep. You put water on the surface and you get an iron, you turn it on and it just, steams the 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 dents right out of the wood yep. uh, it sounds like it's voodoo magic but it does work if those have been in there for a long time there's a good chance that that's not going to work that usually works for like fresh dents and things like that yeah the only way you can really finish that flat we've well, got three options the first one as a drum sander, which you said you don't have access to. If you try to take a 16th of an inch off the top with just a random orbit sander or a belt Ooh. sander, it's it's going to ruin the top. I'm just telling you right now, you're not going to be able to do it. I, I don't care how good you are. You're not going to be able to do it. Um, not evenly anyways. I know there's probably people out there that could do it with a hand plane. I'm not one of those guys. So um, I would just leave them in there mm-hmm. and put finish right over the top of it. You know, mm-hmm. that, that, that's the second option. That'll kind of give you character. The third option is to fill them in. Mm-hmm. Now, you can either patch it where you take, you know, some people call them Dutch, uh, Dutchmans. 
Mm-hmm. It's not a bow tie, but a Dutchman, because it can be any shape you want it to be. Yeah. Um, and you can just make a, a, a template and a router jig and just cut the section out and inlay a new piece over the top of it. That's another way to do it. I mean, yeah. I've done that. I've got a, a piece of furniture that I built brand new that's in my uh, kitchen, and it had a big nasty knot in it but the rest of the boards were really beautiful so i just cut the thing out and put a dutchman in there it's a and popped it in the top and it looks fine right it it looks like it's meant to be there Mm -hmm. so that that is another option that you can do so we've got it all flat we've got all the finish off of it what about finishing Brian, what, what 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 would you recommend if you don't have if you don't want to spray? He's gonna he's saying you know spray finish. He doesn't really have that. He's got wipe on. What would you do? I am going to punt on this because no I, no 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 no. We're not going to let you cut. Co- no. All right. This is where everybody should mute or turn down the volume because I don't know if this is going to be good advice or not, but. I, I always, I always finish any, any like desktops that I do like for our house, like when we did our built-in desk area, um, I'll just use a, um, water-based poly, like a, like a Minwax poly acrylic. Now I'm not using that at a dining table, so I don't know, or a kitchen table. So the level of use it gets i don't know how it would hold up to heat or um the type of type of wear and tear dining or a kitchen table is gonna get but um as far as like ease of application uh i find the water-based poly to go down quite easily yeah Yeah. that's that's pretty sound advice i mean polycrylic and uh what's the general finishes one uh, high performance. High performance. Yeah, I've used both of those, and they're both very good finishes. They lay down really easy. Uh, the only thing with water-based finishes are they are water white. Yeah, and on on any wood, they just don't give you that amberish tone that most people are looking for. I, I before I went with the 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 water-based finish, I'd probably recommend putting down a coat or two of shellac underneath. Yep. Sure. Yep. Sure. And then doing the water-based. But that's that's good advice, Brian. See? No problem, dude. Blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? What do you think, Hui? Man, I would go with uh, good old polyurethane, maybe a little thin down, uh, maybe not to the extent of a wipe on poly, but thin down a little bit so it levels out nice. Um, man, that... Why not? Why not a wipe on poly? I mean, that's okay too. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Nope. Uh, if he doesn't want to go the wipe on route, he can use a brush and maybe, maybe not thin it fifty fifty. Maybe, a, or he can thin it fifty fifty and build it up, or he can, you know, get it on there heavy and sand it back and get it nice and smooth, and then start applying a thinner coats or thin down coats as wiped on, but. There's nothing wrong with polyurethane, whether it be a wipe on polyurethane or a slightly thin polyurethane. Personally, I like to thin it a little bit, if not 50-50 in terms of a wipe on poly. 
I do like to thin it a little bit because I think it flows a little bit better and it and it levels a little nicer than than good old polyurethane. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that if you wanted to do that. So I think yeah. what he said there is perfectly valid. Yeah, I, I would have no problem. Even on a dining room table, I would have no problem putting a just using regular old uh, armor seal on it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely no issue. You just put down four or five coats of that. It doesn't have the buildup that people think is strong, right? but it is strong and it is a durable finish. Yep. Uh, it just has a more closer to the wood feel to it. Super easy to put on. If you don't want to do that, I, I for years I made my own, I think that some people call it Danish oil where it's, yeah. A third, third, third polyurethane naphtha and boiled linseed oil. Yep. Um, and I just did that as a wipe on, and it worked fine. It's much thicker than uh, the wipe on polys or armor but, seal or armor seal. Yeah, the yeah. wipe. That's why I'm calling it wipe on poly, yeah, yeah, and that works really well. Um, I've never tried it. Oh, I shouldn't say that. I have tried it. I didn't really like it, but I know people that do like it which is the stuff they put on, was made for floors. What's it called? Rubio. Rubio, Rubio Monocoat, yeah. yeah. That's something you might want to look at too. I Myself, I tested it out. I bought not very much of it, but I know people that really love that stuff. So yeah. that's maybe another avenue for you. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. I, I, I hope that helps, Jack. And um, I think this goes back to Brian. Actually, I think we we we'll take the next. Well, I'm I'm mess, I'm I'm going to mess up the the order. I'm going to go back to you, Brian. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, I'm going to flex. Up. I'm going to flex my host muscles hey, and say it's hey, going, it's going I, to Brian. Hey, I'm prepared. I'm ready. Okay. All right. This question is from Ben and Nathan. And it says, this is Ben and I'm eight years old. Now, Nathan, the father is the one that wrote the email, but I think he was yeah. typing it for his son, Ben. So this is Ben and I'm eight years old. I would like to make a pocket knife with my dad. What suggestions do you have for making one? So first of all, Ben and Nathan, thank you guys for listening. And thank you for spending time in the shop together. I think that's awesome. And I know I've, I've got a 10 and 12 year old son and each of them, uh, really enjoy being in the shop too. So this one, this one hit home for me. And um, as far as a pocket knife goes, I, I, while I have never made one, um, you, you piqued my interest. And I found that at Rockler, they have a folding pocket knife hardware kit. And I think I'm going to get, I think I'm going to get two of those and me and each of my boys are going to work on making one uh, this fall, something that we can take camping with us, uh, when we go camping later this fall. So, um, I've never used it. I will be using it. And, uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll leave a little commentary, uh, on here at a later episode with how that goes. But, um, for we and guy, I, I know there's maybe not a whole lot to talk about as it relates to making a pocket knife. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to pose a question to you guys. Um, what what opportunities or what memories have you had in your workshops working on kind of a sentimental project, be it with a family member or um, a friend or somebody like that? And and what was that experience? We've how about you first? Okay, so 
sentimental and I say sentimental for with a friend and not with my father because when I was adopted and my adopted father uh, he was a senior when uh, when he adopted me so we didn't really get a lot of time in the shop or woodworking type things uh, he was much older so he didn't have an opportunity to do that but something that I helped a friend with was actually making a rocking horse a little tiny mm. rocking horse that was made out of uh, basically plywood but he had bought the templates and i think this is a great way of introducing uh, young people to to woodworking is is doing like template type projects because it teaches how to get around the router router table now listen i did injure my finger with at the router table so you know be careful it's not a fool foolproof uh piece of equipment but uh but it's it's relatively safe if you're doing it right and you know you got paddles and pads and whatnot but i i did a a small little rocking horse template thing that kind of pieced together uh he had bought the template and we did that and that was a lot of fun so we'd use the bandsaw and we use the pattern routing bit on the router table guy how about you man i i really can't think of anything to be honest <laughs> with you um as far as the, the, the knife kit goes, um, I'm sure other than Rockler, there's plenty of companies out there selling knife kits, but I'm sure that there are also written tutorials that you can take a look at, um, you know, that have pictures and maybe make it a little easier for you. I'd recommend looking at some of those too. Um, but a kit is a good way to go. Um, I know m most of the making of a knife is making the, the what they call the scales, which mm -hmm. are the, actually the, the handles of the knife. And that's just a matter of either you know, carving them, sanding them. Um, you can make them any shape that you want and whether it's a good looking shape or a nasty looking shape, it doesn't really matter. I think that's where the fun is going to be is just putting the kit together and then just seeing where it goes from there. Not maybe not following any norms of what's expected the what the knife is expected to look like or the handle is expected to look like and just do what you want, make it your own. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, and I'm sure Ben, that as you, as you know, your, your father has this for the years to come, he's always going to think of that time. And when he sees that knife, he's going to think of you. Yep. So I think that's, what's important more than anything yeah. else. I'll, I'll tell you, uh, both Nathan and Nathan and Ben, ben, ben. Uh, Woodcraft has a really nice article on knife making. And I think you should definitely check out that website. Uh, it's called Knife Making. And Knifemaking.com. Yeah, if you just do Go Knife figure. Making Woodcraft, you, you can read the article. And uh, yeah, I think that would be a great opportunity for, for you guys to, uh, to, to learn together and figure out what you want to do. So yeah. check that out. All right, we The ball's kicked over to you, man. All right. This is from Tom the Bomb. Fulgora, kind sirs, he always, he's, his questions yeah. are wonderful. Uh, wonderful job, etc. and I hope this finds you well. I post this question knowing full well that I overthink things, according to Guy, even though I am really intelligent 
and have design style. According to Hui, your Tom Fan Club membership package is in the mail, including the life-size Tom cutout, suitable for posting with for social media photos. I need a second desk for as a backup office when my in-laws visit. I have a nice two and a half inch thick ambrosia maple slab about the right size and a couple of four foot long, six inch wide by eight inch wide pine posts. My idea is to wedge mortise the post through the slab to create two, three, uh, 30 inch uh, legs and then mortise these into 18 inch offcuts to make wide feet. Think two upside down capital T's going through the slab three foot apart. Would this construction method obviate the need to consider wood movement since I only have one point of contact between the pieces? My understanding of the wood movement is that it is the constraining of the wood movement that can cause issues. In this case, I can see the mortises getting maybe a 16th of an inch wider in the winter, but if they're wedged, who gives a care? Or should I hide the mortises and give them a little wiggle room to avoid splitting in the leg swells? Would pine stretching crack maple? There I go overthinking things again, but thank you for humoring me. I await your answers with bated breath. Tom the Palm Figura. He's quite uh, he's quite the verbose one with it, with his language. Um, so. So yes, the answer is, you know, it's very important to consider for the design of mortise and tenon joints uh, to consider wood movement. And by the very nature of a mortise and tenon joint, that's going to involve some cross crane joinery, which introduces the risk of the joint failing due to seasonal movements. But believe it or not, most of us already know this and most of us already incorporate things like, for instance, adding shoulders, right, to a to a tenon is one of the alleviations of this, right? Because if that uh, mo- that uh, mortise expands and contracts in any way, well, the shoulder of the tenon or on that rail, if we're looking at, uh, you know, rail and a rail and a leg, uh, it, it is going to alleviate that problem so that you don't see that sort of gap opening up or widening, right? Because it's really sort of the long grain, the long grain connection that's really part of that uh, glue joint. Tom, the fact that you're talking about doing a through mortise and wedging it is really kind of alleviating that problem because one of the main purposes for wedging uh, a tenon is to alleviate that problem that we're just talking about, the wood movement problem. So I think based on what you're doing, the fact that you're going to do a through mortise, and I'm assuming you're doing a through mortise unless you're doing a fox wedge mortise is kind of alleviating that problem. And I don't really think that you have much, uh, much, you're going to come into much issue by doing that. So uh, I say go for it. Brian, what do you think? Yeah, I don't, I don't see any, any real, um, any real concern either. Um, some of the research I had done on it using pine, um, for the, for the tenon because it right the mortise is going into the maple and the in the leg will be made of pine so the tenon will be you know at the end of that that pine um he said six by eight pine post is there is there a brittleness is there any concern with i don't know brittleness may not be the right word i saw one article that talked about uh 
using using pine and they were talking about a drawboard mortise and tenon and the risk of you know a harder wood uh splitting or cracking you know right. the pine tenon is that but but that's where it's going to, to i guess to penetrate the side of the tenon here you're approaching from you know the through side of the tenon and driving a wedge um any concern with that splitting or cracking um not so much on the uh on the on the top but of uh splitting or cracking the tenon itself the pine tenon what do you think guy i i I don't find a problem with this at all Uh, i mean if if i were in tom's shoes which i'm not but if i were and i had this all figured out regardless of the cross grain situation which is not that drastic what he's talking about here is not a, a, a an uncommon thing he's he's just doing something uncommon with the design and mm-hmm. i and i applaud him for that um to to go outside the norms of what's normally done to mm-hmm. do it this way mm-hmm. and in that sense i say go for it and do it the mm-hmm. absolute worst thing that can happen is that it fails and if that's the worst thing that ever happens to you in life you're doing pretty darn good <laughs> go for the go for the look tom you've got it in your mind's eye already just do it yeah. quit overthinking it just can, do it can i can i add one thing yeah one thing something that may help rather than having one singular big mortise try a double mortise and yeah. i think it might split it between the two a little bit better and in terms of what you were saying brian about splitting something that you can do is you can drill a relief hole so that it doesn't split further down the length of the tenon those are two things that could possibly address yeah. with these yeah. big massive tenons because i assume tom's going to have massive tenons because i know tom and he likes big big tenons yes yes yeah. so <laughs> all right guy i think you got do you have the last one guy yeah you yeah. got the last one all right so this comes from caleb gird from the gears and grain woodcraft so it says i recently found your podcast and have been binging it while in the shop he said he was surprised to learn about my my guy's passion for 3d printing and various tinkering he shares the same passion for tinkering that extends beyond woodworking. He talks a little bit about that a little bit, but I'm going to paraphrase it. So he says, apologies if this has been asked before. My question is about shop-built tools and jigs versus store-bought. Yeah, we've discussed it a little bit. I'm, I think we've discussed just about everything on this podcast in one form or another. So from your perspectives, with quality and cost in mind, what tools should be purchased off the shelf and what tools can or maybe should be shop made? You know, cross-cut sleds, planer joining sleds, flattening jigs, clamping jigs, mold bases, rubber bases, and the list goes on and on. For reference, I'm very much a hobbyist making stuff for the house or, or family for, for family and friends while selling a piece here and there. So I do not work under any form of deadlines other than those imposed by my wife. 
I know how that feels. Additionally, this is my creative outlet. I'm a gear design engineer the other 40 hours. This is my opportunity to make what I want to make, Caleb. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start this. I'm gonna I'm gonna list one thing that I think is important to get purchased, and then one thing that I think you can make in the shop and get away with it. How does yeah. that sound? And then I'll kick it I'll, I'll kick it over to you guys. Do it. So the first thing I'd recommend getting store bought, and I talked about this before, is a good reference square. Mm-hmm. Uh, very very important. And there's a couple companies that Incra makes one. They call it the Guaranteed Square. It's not really expensive. It's maybe I think forty dollars, mm-hmm. which to some may be expensive, but I don't think it's that expensive. But it's it's a seven inch square and it's square. I've had I've dropped and I, I've had mine for years. I've dropped it multiple times and I've double checked it and it's still square. It's the square I use for everything. I'd say yep. that's a, a must of something you can buy for yourself yep. or should buy um, yep. as a reference piece. As far as making a jig for yourself, that I, I don't think requires a lot of position precision to make and we were talking about this before earlier in the podcast um whenever i'm doing like curves and stuff i tend to use a compass and Uh that compass is really nothing more than a couple sticks Uh with a hole drilled through it and a bolt and a wing nut and then i'll tape a pencil to the other end and you know put a nail on the other end and i just use that as a big compass and draw things out it's just simple stuff like that i make a lot of jigs at work i think brian seen me make some of that stuff this stuff is i make most of my jigs they're used once for a project and then they're tossed yeah i don't spend days making jigs i'll make a jig to do a certain task and then i get rid of it yeah so i that way i don't have to worry about how beautiful it is i make it for (laughs) function yeah. So I'm going to kick it over to Brian. Go, Brian. No, Brian's looking around. around his shop. Looking around my shop right now, trying to figure out uh, what my recommendation is. Um, I So for a jig I recommend making is I actually recommend making a shelf pin uh, drilling jig. And the reason I yeah. say recommend making it, I mean, Craig has a really nice one you can buy, but I like making it because you can make it a little bit longer. So depending on the size of, of cabinetry or I use it a ton with shop made uh, shelving with just little adjustable shelves is you don't have to constantly move it and reset it and move it and reset it just to get one side done. You can clamp the, you make one that's three feet long and clamp it on and, uh, and drill away. So shelf pin, uh, uh, drilling jig would be one I would make. And then one I would buy is, whew, gosh, I don't have a whole lot of bought jigs here. It could um, be a tool. It's a tool or a jig. All right, here we go. This what this, this, this one's not all that exciting. Um, feather boards. I know you can make them, but having, having a nice variety of feather boards, varying heights, depending on, like for me on my table saw, because I don't have a bandsaw, I've got to do a lot of different things at the table saw. Having a few uh, store-bought feather boards uh, is, 
is really nice to be able to to quickly and easily do what I need. Or or if you're like myself and Caleb and you have 3D printers, you just print them out. You could, or you could just buy it. Or you just print the thing out <laughs> for a cost of 50 cents. Yeah. What about you, Wee? Okay, so a <laughs> jig that I spent way too much time building, and that's really the kicker here, is that I spent way too much time building it, and I probably spent... I don't know, about half the cost of an, a good one in materials to actually build it. So keep that in mind. Uh, would be a crosscut sled. So like a good miter gauge with a good, you know, length. I, we've, it, we've talked about Incra having one. Honestly, I think it's the best one. Um, and I think it's the only one that you should get because I like it so much. But yeah, an Incra jig rather than, or, or Incra... Fence, miter fence, miter fence versus uh, uh, building, you know, the aircraft carrier that I have for a crosscut sled. Now, my crosscut sled has lasted a long time, about 10 years, and it's very well used, but I probably spent way too much time designing it and thinking about it and, and building it probably like two days. Not worth it. Just buy one is much better. Uh, and you can recalibrate them, which is really, really nice. Mine cannot be recalibrated. Uh, one that I think is worth making because I make a whole bunch of different ones. I do have a nice one, but it's limited, um, is a tapering jig. I think tapering jigs are really e like I've made, you know, long tapering jigs, short tapering jigs for short, stouty, you know, little legs and whatnot. But a tapering jig is super easy to make. You use it once, you use it twice, you throw it out, you make another one. They're really easy to do. I highly re recommend making a tapering jig. Yeah, I've, I, they actually, they were getting a little bit backed up in what we call our full custom department at work. And they asked me to come out and I've been out there half a day for the last couple of weeks. I've been making five tables. And it's a little bit, I don't want to get into the exact thing of it, but I, they're all tapered legs. And I made yeah. a, a tapered leg jig with uh, plywood scraps and probably 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Brad Naylor scraps. Yep. Brad Naylor scraps. Just put it on there. Boom, boom, boom. Put a couple of Tostecki clamps on there to clamp wood down. And I was ready. I was ready to rock. I cut them on the bandsaw because they were so big. Yeah. And I just ran them once over the, the joiner. And yeah, you got it. <laughs> I've done the I was, same thing. I was, I was gold. It was golden, man. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. Well, I, I hope that gives you an idea, Caleb. There's a lot of things that you can buy that, that are probably worth buying. But some jigs, like I said, my, my theory on jig making is mostly to just serve a, a single purpose and then get rid of it. Yeah. Mainly because I don't have a ton of room in my shop. Not like Brian. Oh, all 150 square feet of it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it, man. You make cabinets in that place. Oh, man. They're small, they're small cabinets. So, wow. uh, Brian, what you got going on in your shop? Um, well, I was at uh, church camp last week as a camp counselor. So, um, didn't didn't really get a whole lot done since the last podcast, but still working on, a, on a, about a four foot by five foot uh, uh, piece that's going to go up on a wall with kind of uh, it's almost like a little slat wall back backer for a TV that'll be mounted uh, on it, and it's got a floating shelf, 
uh, at the very bottom of it. And it's got like 28 different uh, pieces of ash that I'm working on getting milled down to size and cut to length and sanded and rounded over to, to go into that. And some of them are the same length and some of them are shorter because of the, the placement of the floating shelf. And it's, it's, yeah, it's slow moving. I've been pretty lazy in my shop lately. Yeah. We, what about you? Oh man. So I've got all the rails and styles for these coping stick doors for the China cabinet done. Now I need to make the muntins. And if you don't know what the muntins are, if you're making a light divided door, in my case, it is a true light divided door. So it's multiple panes, not just one single pane. And you've got these dividers that are faux. Uh, these are actual real dividers and there'll be six uh, individual panes of glass in between each of the muntins. So I'm, I'm in the process of making the muntins or the those dividing bars for this light divided door, the pair of light divided doors that I'm making. So, uh, yeah, I'm really happy to get the doors, the rails and styles of the doors done. I just got to do this one last thing and hopefully uh, assemble it and get glass cut for it. So how about you, Guy? What do you got going on? In the shop? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> no, in your mind, in your brain. What do you got going Absolutely on? Absolutely nothing. Um, <laughs> but I said at work, I've been making these, there's these five tables and the they're a little bit wonky because the legs, um, they're at an angle and they're kicked out. So everything is compound angles on it. So splayed legs? Sorry. didn't Splayed legs, yeah. 10 degrees one way and five degrees another way. Interesting. So okay. getting the, the them to fit and get the aprons. There's aprons too that all have to be fit into it. But the legs are also turned a little bit. It's hard to explain, yeah. Um, yeah. but they're very wonky. And it's bar height too. And bar height, yeah. A 42-inch high table. So figuring that out, huh? Yeah, it, well, it wasn't figuring out. It's just figuring out a way to do it where I could make, you know, 20 legs. Oh, gotcha. That are consistent. Yeah, production type. Yeah. Production style. Yeah. So, but uh, I've been sanding the last couple of days. Tables. Just the legs. <laughs> just the legs I, and the, the, the apron assemblies. I remember a couple episodes ago where you said you like sanding. I do like sanding. Doesn't bother me at all. Okay. Um, okay. Do you still like sanding? Sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't mind it. It's it's easy. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. It gives me time to think, reflect. That's fair. That's fair. So... Um, all right. So I think that's going to do it for this show. And uh, we would like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions for the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram Instagram at Woodshop Life, and I can be found at Guy's Shop on YouTube. And where can you be found, We AlabamaWoodworker.com. All the links are there to my socials. And Brian, how about you? 
Uh, no, no traditional social media for me, but you can find uh, a project or two of mine on simplecove.com at Brian Schmidt. All right. Awesome. Well, very good. Thanks so much, guys. And uh, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Sounds great. Talk to All you right. in a couple. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.